Well, good morning. In terms of allegiance to one's alma mater, this is probably the most segregated worship service we've ever had around here. All of those who are KU fans are probably already out of here. We, the place was littered with KU fans in the first service, and you may wonder why, right? I, I know that there is uh, interspersed around here KU fans as well that actually are taking one for the team in terms of being here just to make sure everything goes well for the team uh, during the game. I'm not sure theologically what I think of that, but uh, good for you for being here. And um, it has been a, it's been quite a, 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 a tournament, hasn't it? Last night, cheering for Wisconsin, I was like, oh my goodness, they just barely, barely pulled that one out, but... What a, what a fun time of year. we got a lot going on here that's fun, too. It's fun to welcome the teams back from Guatemala and from Nepal and India. Uh, it's also fun to uh, share with you. It will be enjoyable to share with you next week what we're doing to roll out some changes in children's ministry. Uh, we have had some great help from Evelyn Johnson. Some of you may know her. She was actually on staff here as director of children ministry years ago when Tim Eck was here. She is now the executive vice president to Gary Walter, the president of our denomination. And she loves Hillcrest, and she's been spending some time with us as we try to more clearly focus how we can be more uh, uh, organized around our purpose and our vision. And she'll be back in a couple, she'll be back in another week and a half to spend some time with us. And on that Monday night, or on that on August 1st, April 1st, when we get together to talk about worship, Evelyn actually has volunteered to help walk us through that. She's just really remarkable in that way. And so please pray for us as we move forward with that. Well, just a couple of mornings ago, I was on my treadmill, and I couldn't hear the sound at the, at the place I was working out, but I could see the commercial. And it was a commercial for Liberty Mutual, and there were, there were air conditioners that were falling out of second-store buildings on top of cars, and there was a woman who had opened the door to a car, and a vehicle came by and took the door right off the hinges, and there was another vehicle that was just getting squeezed together. And the commercial is about being human. Liberty Mutual is selling insurance, and they said, we sell insurance because people are human. And you can actually see some of the logo from what that, the crafting of that advertisement looks like. And as I was looking at that commercial and thinking about the text of what we're talking about this morning, I believe that Liberty Mutual has it completely wrong in regards to what it means to be human. I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to actually be more human. You know, my kids would say that's a good thing because they've wrecked a couple of cars, at least severely damaged them in their growing up. And they finally dad gets what it's like to be human. Well, as we look at the text this morning, you'll realize that to be human doesn't necessarily mean that we are more mistake prone, um, that we uh, uh, go from one disaster to another. So we're going to look at that. What does it mean for us actually to be more human this morning. In order that we might be, as Mary Magdalene was, a witness to the resurrection. So would you pray with me as we begin our time together in God's Word. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege we have of being able to gather together for worship, of being able to celebrate the things that you're doing in the world, of being a part of those things in small ways. And Lord, of the opportunity that we have to open up this ancient book and be convinced that because of the power of your spirit, uh, you can do surgery in our hearts and minds. And God, that's what we pray you would do for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Just last Sunday, we were talking about the first witness to the resurrection being Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a witness, actually, to Jesus dying, literally dying. And we talked about what the implications of that would look like and what it means for us to be that witness to the resurrection as well, too. I was really astounded by the reaction in the room. I had someone say after the second service, Mark, we will remember this day for a very, very long time. And uh, someone who is here, who has well commented and says, I will remember April 16th, 2014. And I think we will as a church as the day Hillcrest died. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted hundreds of people standing up and saying, you know what? I want to go back to or ha- make for the first time a decision to die to myself in order that I might live for Christ. It's that passage from Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. What does it mean to, to die to myself? And as I just saw so many people from Hillcrest standing up, I just thought, I wonder what it will mean. Because I know what it meant to me when I made that commitment. The way God changed me, I, I didn't even have a clue what that would mean. But just the adventure of living that out and seeing what it looks like. I can't wait to see what it means for April 16th to be the day that Hillcrest died. And if you were traveling or weren't with us last Sunday, I would just encourage you to get online, not just simply to be, you know, what was this all about? But listen and say, God, what what part am I in this? Because I'm a part of this church family. Well, And then when asked the question, if I die, what does that impact look like? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Our text is actually relatively brief brief this morning. As we look at John 20, it's just essentially the story of Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb and discovering there that uh, the body is gone. It says she went to the tomb while it was still dark. And this may be a statement made even by uh, by John to say that there was still an lack of clarity in regards to what was true. Clearly, Mary Magdalene didn't know what was true going on here. The stone had been removed from the entrance, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, Jesus has risen from the dead. No, I guess that's not what she said, is it? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've placed him. The body of Jesus has been stolen from us. I mean, consider this. Mary thought that Jesus was entirely human. There were really two options here. And the first option is it was a miracle and Jesus rose from the dead. The other option was it's a crime. Jesus' body has been stolen. Why did she choose option number two? I mean, here she was. She knew how extraordinary Jesus was. She had heard the stories of the things that Jesus had done. Maybe she had even met Lazarus after he was resurrected from the dead. I mean, this is really remarkable. She, she knew what Jesus was like, and yet she still chose option number two. I think there are two reasons. The first is this, because she was still thinking like any other human would. <laughs> I mean, he was human. What other possibility is there? There aren't many. But there's a second reason why she thought that the body was stolen. And it's because Jesus had lived like any other human being would. You see, 
Mary picked number two because she was thinking like any other human and because she had been around Jesus and Jesus was living like any other human. What happens? Humans die. Their body is prepared for burial. They're buried. They're buried. And, and, and if the body's not there, the explanation has got to be consistent with what's true for any other human. Must have had the body stolen. Mary's first thought was to explain Jesus' circumstances using as a reference point his utter humanness. He died like us because he lived like us among us. To which you might say, yes, but she was wrong, wasn't she? Well, she was wrong. But before we, before we point the finger, let's notice that there's something that she was right about. And she was right about this. He was real. He was human. I want to make three observations. The third will hopefully guide you into some uh, contemplation of what it looks like for you to apply this or to work out the the, uh, implications of this in your life. But the first observation is this. Those closest to Christ considered him utterly human. Utterly human. I mean, have you seen that T-shirt, you know, guys wear, and it's a T-shirt where, where it actually looks like a guy's bare chest and he's got his six-pack going there. And, and most of the time, guys that are in double extra large just wear that T-shirt. You know, they're trying to disguise what's really real. And so they got this really cool svelte physique uh, that at least it, there's appearance from a distance. Whoa, this guy has really got it put together. And then you get up close and the guy's a double extra large. You say, you know, you're not going to be able to disguise that that easily. Uh, What do you think it was like for Jesus to disguise who he was? You know, I mean, is it just is it it a, a disguise of some sense? Jesus, the son of God who comes to earth and he is God incarnate himself. How do you disguise that? You know, we see what Jesus did is he, he would need more than a cover-up to do that. In Philippians chapter 2, this is what it tells us. Jesus took on the form of a man, emptied himself. He, he made himself human. He took on flesh, it says. There's no sense that Jesus tried to pretend to be real, authentic, human. He didn't carry his humanity awkwardly. He lived human. In John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, and this is a reference to Christ, became flesh and blood, and the message says, moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) That's what he did. He moved into the neighborhood. Those closest to Christ considered him utterly human. The second observation here, and that is that if Jesus came to earth and was utterly human while he was still God, we need a refresher on what it means to be human. Who would have ever thought that to be human was actually to be Christ-like. Isn't that interesting? So oftentimes we think, well, I'm a Christian now, and so I'm going to be Christ-like. And, and what does that look like? Well, we look at this text, we, we look at Christ, and we realize 
to be Christ-like is to be utterly human. Well, what does that mean? There are four pieces of it, really. There are four elements of it that uh, must come to our attention. And the first thing, it means that there's a significance in us being human. To be human is to be significant. When God created humankind on the sixth day of the week, he said about us, we are very good. God is good and beautiful, and God makes beautiful things. And when he saw what he had made, he remarked about it, about us. That is good. Beautiful. Unique in all creation. Extraordinary. Now, the fall overshadows this reality, and the fall happens so quickly that I don't think we come to grips with what it means for us to be made human. To be human is not, in essence, is not fundamentally, is not about making mistakes. And, you know, we, we use this phrase all the time. Well, I'm only human, or they're only human. You know, I'm human. And, and we connect with that, the sense that, what do you expect? I'm going to make mistakes. And I get that. I mean, I understand how we use that language that way. But to use that language that way is essentially to, to, to uh, not recognize the fundamental, the fundamental meaning of the word. To cast it in the wrong light. Humanity is not something that needs to be fixed about a person. To be human is not to be rejected because you don't measure up. To be human is to be made in the image of God and for God to say, that's good. That's good. Some, some groups have really struggled with this. They say, I, I, just don't know, I just don't know that I get that. In fact, in religious circles, there are some that would say, well, Jesus never really was human. That's almost too base. It just, seem, it just seems uns, uh, unfitting for the God of the universe. You know, and so you've got to basically f- conceive of some sort of a notion where if he was, then boy, Joseph and Mary probably didn't spend any money on diapers. You, you see, because that just doesn't feel like it. I just can't imagine God of the universe quite like that. In fact, there are there are people who have who have created this, and they would say that divinity came to Jesus when he was baptized. Do you remember when he was baptized? God said, "This is my son," and it says that the Spirit came from heaven and descended upon Jesus. And they say, "See, that's when he became." divine. Uh, and no, no diapers that God was involved in. That's when he became divine. And in fact, he never died because that's just so human as well, too. And they'll point to, you remember when Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, see his deity then left him at that point. And, and all of the human stuff that's messy, God of the universe couldn't have anything to do with. And if we spend any time in God's Word, we recognize that although there might be a tendency to want to say that, the reality is what we see here. He was absolutely and utterly human. There are others that believe that we should somehow 
free ourselves from the constraints of the body, to, to do a mindset or a thinking or a, a point of view in our, in, our, in our lives where we can spiritually disembody ourselves from our humanity to a higher level of being, this oneness of nature or, the, or this one with the world is more noble. And yet we look at the way we were created and God said, you know, you were as noble as you ever needed to be when I made you human. That is who you are. And then there are others who talk about dying to self and they distort it in a way that's different than what we talked about last week and become have this negative disregard uh, for the body to diminish ourselves physically and self-mutilation and all of those things because the body just is a bad thing. Well, to go any, down any one of those routes is essentially to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is to um, throw the person the humanity out with the problem that that we deal with. The problem is not humanity. The problem is humanity disconnected. And this brings us to the second element of what it means to be human. And that means to be interconnected. To be human is to be interconnected. We see when God made humankind, Adam and Eve, he created two uniquely beautiful persons that together make up humanity and together bear the image of God. When Jesus, when God, when God saw Adam there in the garden and he said, it is not good for man to be alone, it wasn't just because he'd be lonely. It was because the function of the universe is based on the creation of men and women together being the image of God. And there's a, this, is, this is physically true. You take one man or you take a group of men and they think they can do anything in the world. You take one woman and you take a group of women and I haven't been in those meetings, so I don't know what they think. (laughs) But, you know, the reality is this, is you take either one of those groups or individuals and guess what? They don't last. It's not sustainable. There are many other ways that this is true as well, too, that the character of of, of, of who Adam and, and, and the, the men and Eve and, and women, there are many ways in which this inconnection gives a beauty and a vibrancy and a, and a significance to life. And so here's what I'd like you to do. Those women who are here, you just look at any guy you see around you and you just say, face the facts, you can't do it without me. And, and you guys, you just, you just look at any woman around and you just say, face the facts, you need us. All right? So just go ahead and do that. Talk amongst yourself, all right? Face the facts. You need us. Not a lot of enthusiasm for that this morning. <laughs> but there's, there's another fact here. And uh, it, we were made to be interconnected with each other. Uh, but, and, that's, and that's what it means to be human. But there's another element of it. And that is we were made to be interconnected with him. You see, humanity is fully expressed in interconnected lives. Humanity is fully experienced in full surrender to God. And so God says to us the same thing we said to each other. Face the facts. You need me. In order to be utterly human, you need me. 
Second Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 and 18 and through 18 actually talks about this. It says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away that that confusion, that inability to see uh, clearly or to be totally. Now, the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of Lord, the Lord is there is freedom and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. And what is His image? We were made human in the image of God, and we are translate. We, we are um, transformed into humanity when we are connected with the One who made us. Do you want to be fully human? To be fully and vibrantly human is to be connected with God Himself, interconnected in relationship with Him. C.S. Lewis grasped this. He's done a lot of great reading, but there's a, a volume that he wrote called The Great Divorce. And it's a story, really, of a bunch of ghosts that are wandering around in the world trying to find their way to something of significance. And there's a picture, there's a story of a, of, of a ghost that's walking towards a mountain. Because there's this hope that it gets to the mountain and he can find something of significance in the presence of God, really, is, is wrapped up in that picture. And the narrator of this story is watching this whole thing transpire. And as this ghost, who's not really real, not robust and tangible, just, just a ghost, has a lizard on his shoulder. And though he's making his way towards the mountain, the lizard somehow convinces him to turn around and, and go back again. And then an angel steps in and says to the ghost, are you sure you want to give up your journey to the mountain that quickly? And they begin to talk about the implications of what that means and the way the lizard would get in the way of it. And the angel says to the ghost, if you want, I'm sorry, the ghost says to the angel, if you wanted to help me, then why didn't you kill this lizard without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. The angel responds, I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what he was saying. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of a ghost, not a real ghost and real person as you are now. He doesn't understand. Have I your permission? Said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I? Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken back onto the turf. Ah, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, between me and that nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider 
the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter and stronger still, the legs and the hands, the neck and the golden head materialized. And while I watched, I saw the actual completion of a man. Naked, not much smaller than the angel. You see what C.S. Lewis is is saying? To belong to Jesus is to be solid, robust, complete humanity. And it is good. That's the way we were made to be. God will restore the damaged image and build upon it. There's a third element of what this is all about, this refresh on what it means to be human, and that is the word that we use, the word humanities. It's a category of the sciences used in a term of uh, encompassing all aspects of life. But the word humanities talks about the aspect of subduing the earth that's about more than engineering that we oftentimes think of when we think about subduing the earth. It it is the labor that we engage in that unleashes the ultimate potential of creation for our good and for His glory. It is this invitation that God gave to Adam and Eve and everyone that came after Adam and Eve to engage in culture and to engage in law to study anthropology, biology, to enjoy art and sociology and governance, all of those pieces of what it means for us to be engaged in creation as humans for the good of others and for the glory of God. N.T. Wright says in Simply Christian, it is essential to Christian living that we should celebrate the goodness of creation ponder its present brokenness, and insofar as we can, celebrate in advance the healing of the world, the new creation itself. Art, music, literature, dance, theater, and many other expressions of human delight and wisdom can all be explored and experienced in new ways. This is what God wants for us, to engage in the humanities Because we're human. And then there's a fourth element of that, and that is to be human is to be humane. All of us bear the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, there's this prohibition against murder. And the reason for the prohibition is this. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Every single one of them. And for us to be human is to be humane in regards to them. What are the implications of this? The implication is we will engage in a life devoted to helping people find their way back to God. We want them to be utterly complete. We want them to live robust lives that are human and solid. And we know how that happens. And so to be humane is to help people find their way back to the God who transforms us to what we were made to be in the first place. And the other implication of this is that we invest in their humanity. 
this natural respect for all, this desire to protect their humanity so that nothing would encroach upon it. And so this is why we're engaged in concern for people. Slavery, human trafficking, manipulation of another person, coercion, intimidation of other people, or rejection or marginalization of all of other people. All of those things are improper. If we have decided to live a humane life, all of those things will gain our attention. All of those things will garner our energies. There must be room in our theology for humanism. A Christian and biblical humanism which is concerned for making broken things whole again. Broken people whole again. That's humane. Broken systems whole again. That's humane. Broken thinking whole again. That's humane. Broken cultures, whole again. Imagine this, that people will actually be drawn to follow Jesus because they look at us and they say about us, you are just so human. Imagine that. You are just so human. Would have never expected it. And yet we're engaged in this very world in the way Jesus was. Which brings us to this third piece of it. We need to be reminded of our human or our humane calling. To get dirty. To take hits. To engage in the world. You see, the evidence of the resurrection... Those who are witnesses to the resurrection are not simply those who have said, I choose to die to self. But they also say, I choose to live in the world. That is evidence of the resurrection. So there are a couple of things I'm going to invite you. We're going to take some time here at the end. I'm going to invite you to just seek God's wisdom on Ask him to speak to you about it. There are really two pieces of this. And the first is this. This is an invitation for you and I to reinvest in the neighborhoods that God has called us to. What is the neighborhood God called you to? Find your neighborhood. Don't become increasingly isolated. I think we have such a tendency to this. And this is just a human trait, actually, is to just cluster together with like-minded people. And so we develop our own recreation group. We develop our own teams. We develop our own clubs, our own groups, our own organizations, our own schools, whatever. We, we develop all of those things. And it's not that those don't have some value to us. But the question must be, um, but where is the neighborhood that God has called me to live in in the world? What about the other humans around me? What about them? You'll hear us talking about, and there are other people that are talking about this language of missional communities. It means that we actually go out into the world we live in and engage, not in isolated ways, but several of us go and get involved in a civic organization or in a need around a, a, a need in a particular school or get involved in a book club together, join a hockey team or whatever it is, actually be engaged in the world in that way. A book group, a movie group, whatever it might be. 
You say, no, Mark, I was with you until you got to this point where you're actually asking me to engage in helping people find their way back to God. And you know what? I, I, I can't do this. I, I can't be a part of that. To which I, I must respond, can you be human? You see, that's all that it takes. For us to just simply be human in those places. N.T. Wright said this, The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, Building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. They're part of what we may call being human. Reinvest in the neighborhood God has called you to be about. So the question becomes this, who will you hang around with? Who will call you their best friend? What will they be like? Mary Magdalene? Do you know who she was? She was some demon-possessed woman that everybody was afraid of and no one had any hope for and no one wanted to hang around. And yet there she is at the end of Christ's life saying he was utterly human to me. So that's the first piece of this. It is to reinvest in the neighborhood God has called you to. And the second piece is this, bear the scars of living a human life. Bear the scars of of living a human life. When I was young, I got back from college and I would work for my dad breaks, Christmas break and summer vacations. And I would often, I would come back home from college kind of basically looking like this, hands that basically held pencils and that's about it in their hands. In my dad's business, part of it was to rewind electric motors. And so we would stick our hands into statters and just rip out copper wiring and all of the insulation and then go to the machine and wrap copper, spools and spools of copper, just wire winding your way through your hands. And my first week or so was always just blisters all over my hands. And I was a little bit embarrassed that I was such a wimp in regards to that. And I would look at my dad's hands, and they were just filled with scars. And I looked at his hands, and I thought, those hands tell stories. I knew some of them. I knew some of the scars. I knew why part of this pinky finger was gone. I, I was there that day. They're just stories that are told by the scars in his hands. And I thought to myself, I want to have hands like that. I, I want those stories. I want to be that person who just dives into the needs and concerns of life, regardless of what it takes, and be thoroughly engaged in what's going on. Do you know when we see Jesus' resurrection body, after he rises from the dead, and his body is a resurrected body, 
guess what we see? We see hands with scars on them. His resurrected body tells a story. And when we get to Revelation chapter six, 5, verse 6, it says, Behold the Lamb of God in heaven, looking as if he had been slain. Do you see what Jesus carried into heaven? Nail-scarred hands because he was human. What scars will you and I carry with us to heaven because we decided to live in neighborhoods where it was necessary for us to be fully engaged? What's your neighborhood? What will your scars be? Let's ask God to give us some wisdom in regards to that.